So Mark chapter 13, in this um, copy, I'm on page 710 um, in, the, in the green one, Mark chapter 13. Uh, we are uh, walking with Jesus in the last week of his life. We are, have been witness to this kind of, of tennis match of the last week where, where uh, they've been doing kind of a tag team action on Jesus in which uh, Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians and scribes and various other uh, folks have been trying to, f- first of all, figure out where he fits and then try and figure out how to disable him uh, because of his rising popularity. He is, he is becoming dangerous to a religious establishment that they have invested themselves in. And so they're terribly threatened by him and they're trying to figure out how to marginalize him. And if have come to the conclusion, at least more than one of them have come to the conclusion that he needs to die, that he needs to be eliminated, that his, 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 it's not going to be enough to embarrass him, besides which we can't. We're, We're not able to demonstrate that he doesn't know what he's talking about because in fact he does. So the only way to save, um, uh, the nation from the craziness that he is about to lead us into um, is is to get him out of the out of out of the way. I, I think it's important that we understand that the enemies of Jesus got Jesus in a way that his disciples didn't. The reason the Pharisees wanted to marginalize him, the read the Sadducees and so on and so forth, wanted to marginalize Jesus was because they understood what he was doing in a way that even his disciples didn't. And, 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 and they realized that he was introducing a whole other scheme of the kingdom of God than they had spent their entire lives preparing for. They had, they, they had spent their entire lives preparing for a world which, if Jesus was going to have his way, would be no longer existent. Have you ever, ever had a sense of that? It's like becoming an expert in in programming language, and then you discover that the whole computer world changes overnight, and now you are speaking a language nobody else understands, right? Um, it, it, I become an when, when I was in, in, in high school, I learned how to design and repair tube radios with a, a variable capacitor radio for tuning. It was gorgeous, and it was beautiful, and it lit up, and you could warm your hands by the light of the, of the tubes. Anybody even know what I'm talking about with tubes? Thank you. Thank you. Old people. Uh, anyway, um, so, so and, 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 and our, our instructor in 1972 was talking about how there was this new thing coming up. It's probably not going to catch on called semiconductors. You know, transistors and diodes and things of that nature that, that w- w- it's probably not going to catch on because the sound coming out of those things, not quite as good, not quite as good. So I became an expert in tube technology only to discover within five years it's completely irrelevant unless you really love and embrace uh, the sound of a Hammond B3 played through a 147 Leslie which has a, nobody even knows what I'm talking about. Adam, where's Adam? Help me. <laughs> so, anyway, but you know, these guys had prepared for an entire career in tube technology only to be run over by Microsoft. That's why they, and they, they got Jesus. They understood that if he got, if what he said was coming down the pike, it was all over for them. The disciples didn't understand that. 
they understood, and this is, we're going to get to 13 here in a minute. They thought, along with the popular opinion, that Jesus was going to lead a revolt against Rome, was going to establish Israel as once again the center of the universe and with Jerusalem as its capital and the temple as the pinnacle of God's reign on earth through Jerusalem, through Israel, to the rest of the world. That is what Messiah was coming to do, and Jesus is our latest and best uh, candidate for that role. The primaries are in, the caucuses are caucused, and he's our man. And... Um, even though Jesus had relentlessly pushed back against that understanding, the Pharisees got it, the demons got it, the disciples not so much. Isn't that, wouldn't that be frustrating? Your enemies understand you better than your followers do. Um, but that's the scenario. So, so we are building towards this event in a couple of days in which Jesus is going to be executed. The Pharisees say it's better for one man to die than for a nation to be destroyed by the uprising that he brings. So they understand, even though they're using the right language, they've got it inside out. They're describing it backwards, right? Um, and so they, they, this is the logic for them. So as we sit with this, I want you to notice then how this interplay works and how Jesus is going to take this 13th chapter is Jesus' one last attempt with his disciples to say, this is not going to go down the way you think it is, guys. Fasten your seatbelts. You are in for a rough ride. It's going to be hell on earth virtually literally for you. This is not computing with them. This is the adults in Charlie Brown. Wah, 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 wah. They, they don't get it. But nonetheless, he says it. So we'll pick it up at verse 13, chapter 1. Notice what they're saying. As they were leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Just want to stop there. I'm going to do this a little differently than we have before because I want to get through all this 13th chapter. Don't panic. Uh, but what I want to do is, is just kind of highlight a couple things so that we can see the forest as we get there. So they're coming out. This, this building is probably one of the, maybe the eighth wonder of the ancient world, if you will. It is a beautiful building. It, it is white. It captures the sunrise. It captures the sunset. It, glow, it almost glows in the beauty of the architecture. It is one of those buildings that you, you have to come up to. It's on the top of the highest uh, hill in Jerusalem. And it is a building you can't approach directly from. You have to come up to it so it has the architectural uh, image of being taller and more magnificent even than it actually is, if you can imagine that kind of a scenario. This is the most beautiful building they have ever seen in their entire lives. These stones to which they refer, feats of ancient architectural engineering. We have had, if you get the image of this, I don't know if you've been following the, 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 the journey of the rock in this last week, right? From the quarry out in Riverside, what was it, 150 tons or 850 or 12 billion tons? I don't know what it is. Anyway, it's making its way from Riverside to LACMA, where they're going to establish it as a work of art. 
um, it's just stunning. Anybody else know what I'm talking about or am I talking to myself? Okay, good. So that, that, these stones are like that. They're the same size and the same weight, except that they are perfectly squared at the quarry, then brought into position and established in place. It is a feat of engineering. It is a feat of architecture. It is stunning in its beauty and its architectural genius. And they are proud of it. It is as if you stood in the, by the reflecting pool in the National Mall and behind you is the monument and in front of you is the Congress and the White House and Jefferson and, 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 and the, the, you, you got the picture. This is, this is who they are and this is where God is going to establish the rule of righteousness through Jesus. So they think they're pointing something out to him that he should probably take note of. Look at these beautiful buildings. Look at these massive stones. They're sizes of boxcars. Right? And Jesus says, you see all these great buildings? Not one stone will be left on another. It will all be thrown down. This was not what they wanted to hear. They, this, doesn't, this, is, this doesn't compute. He's gone off message again. Somebody needs to help the boy. Right? So, so, so his closest followers, and you can see the other eight or nine guys say, Peter, James, John, Andrew, please get him back on message. Figure out what he's talking about, and let's figure out how to spin this so that we can get it in the right direction because Passover is only two or three days away. We're starting to lose time here. And he's talking about destruction. It's as if somebody before September 11th said, you see these tall towers? These monuments to our ability to build? Not one stone will be left standing on another. Except if they'd said it about the White House or about the Congress. Can, can, can you feel the weight on their soul as he says this? Because they've come to rely on him for truth. And he's just saying, guys, if we're counting on this being the capital building of the kingdom that's coming, we're in a world of hurt because this building is not going to exist in a relatively short period of time. So Peter and John... Andrew, sitting with Jesus on the Mount of Olives, verse 13, they ask him privately. I love this. They don't want to have this conversation in public. So what comes next is Jesus' conversation to his closest disciples. All right? This is not for public consumption, in other words. They ask him two questions. First, tell us when will these things happen? And then secondly, what will be the sign that all this is about to be fulfilled. And that frames what happens in the, in the next few verses. So Jesus begins in verse 5 just laying out a foundation of response. I'm going to move fairly quickly, um, but I, I, I want you to, I'm going to try and anchor this a, a, a little bit for you. So um, first of all, Jesus is saying, first of all, watch out that no one deceives you because many are going to come in my name, in the name of Messiah, 
and say, I am He. I am the Messiah. Many are going to come in my name and deceive many who want a person to lead them in the middle of chaos. Whenever we are are in chaos, we desperately want a leader to help us, and people will take advantage of that. All you got to do is think of Germany between the First World War and the Second World War, and you understand what Jesus is saying here. The nationalistic longing for re-establishment is so strong that they will even follow a madman to their own destruction. So deep is the longing for somebody to lead us in chaos. And Jesus is just saying, guys, they're going to come. Don't be distracted. Don't be persuaded. Don't be misled. You are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. This is just the beginning of the birth pangs. Now, I need you to sit with me for this, with me for, on this for just a second. The Gospel of Mark was written to people in about 65 to 70 A.D. Not one word of it was written to us. Not one word of it technically is written for us. We have to understand what it meant to them before we can even begin to understand what it means to us. Is that fair? Mark is not a postmodern writer in which the reader can just invent meaning. Mark is a pre-modern writer in which words mean things and don't mean other things. You with me on this? So Mark's audience, when he writes this, understands what he's talking about. Therefore, when I open up my newspaper and I see, oh, there's another war in the Middle East, or we're concerning, considering nuclear issues with Iran or with North Korea at, at one time, or I read of a, of a border skirmish and in, in whatnot, I should not read through the lens of Mark 13 this event in the light of what Jesus is saying. I need to understand that his audience understood him to be talking about wars and rumors of wars in their lifetime, which were intense. Remember, he is talking to a people who for 400 years have been at one type of war or another. They have been under first Greek and now Roman domination. These people understand war in a way that we in North America particularly do not understand war. Even though we send our soldiers off to, to, to fight in foreign wars of various kinds and places and we honor and celebrate them, we need to understand that these people lived in the war zone. Do you see? And he's saying to them, guys, this is going to continue. Now, why does he say that? Because they expect, with Messiah's coming, that peace will break out in the world. And he's saying to them, not, not, not for a while. You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. Not only that, 
there are going to be natural disasters occurring, earthquakes and famines of one kind or another will be occurring. And of course, we want to telescope up, and every time there's an earthquake in Arkansas or, or uh, Oklahoma or a tornado or a famine and this, that, and the other, aha, that's what he's talking about. No, that's not what he's talking about. Did you know that Jerusalem is built on a fault line? The mountain on which he is sitting, the Mount of Olives, has a fault line running right through the center of it. They knew about earthquakes. And they were about to experience cataclysmic famine in the next 20 years. And Jesus is just saying, this isn't the end. Hang in there. Don't panic. Don't be afraid. Don't be alarmed. Easy for you to say, Jesus. Right? We're going to find out why it's easy for him to say this. So then, verse 9. You've got to, therefore, be on your guard. And here's where it gets personal. Because you're going to be handed over to local councils. You will be flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. So whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, don't worry about what to say. Just, whatever, get, just say whatever is given you at the time, for you are not speaking, but rather the Holy Spirit. Because brother is going to betray brother to death. A father, his child, children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. This is intense for these guys, right? Because again, what are they expecting? When you come into your glory, remember this is a conversation we had three chapters ago. When you come into your glory, we grant that one of us sits on your right and one of We, in other words, we want, you know, the, the suite with the executive restroom. We want special parking when the kingdom comes. And Jesus is saying, probably body armor would be better for you at this time. You might want to be thinking about how you're going to survive when your families turn you over to the authorities for believing in me. And that, this is the imagery that he, he, he's... You see what he's doing, right? He's just trying to shake these guys up so they understand. This is not what you expected. I am not your grandma's Messiah. Something else is happening here. Get a hold of this, because that truth is going to be what saves you through the chaos that follows. If you don't get this, you're going to be as confused and misled and distracted and distorted as anybody else. So get it, he's saying to them. Back up in verse uh, 9, you've got to be on your guard because you're going to be handed over to the local councils and the synagogues. This is amazing. The sin you will be flogged in synagogues. Remember their understanding. Jerusalem is the seat of God's authority. That translates into the synagogal patterns of teaching and worship in other parts of the world. These were supposed to be the places through which power was distributed and the world was governed. And what instead is going to be happening in the synagogues is you, because you're a follower of me, will be flogged in the synagogues. They don't flog people in synagogues. That's not what's supposed to be happening there. But if you follow the disciples in the book of Acts, you discover that's precisely what happened. 
so angry, so frustrated were they with the message of the disciples of life in Christ that the Jewish followers in the synagogues either believed or got so upset they took out and literally were causing riots as a result of the message of the disciples. Jesus is just saying, this is coming down. Be ready. Be on your guard. This is going to happen. Please notice. I'm not telling you this so that you can escape it. I'm telling you this so you know what's going on when it happens. This is critical for us, right? At the end of the day, uh, he says, um, you're going to be arrested. You're going to be brought to trial before kings, before courts, before local councils. We see this again. Apostle Paul in the book of, in the book of Acts, we see this with Peter. We see it all the way through the history of the church in the first hundred years particularly, and often through that period of time. We, there are more people dealing with this kind of persecution now than ever before in the history of the world. So we need to understand Jesus is not promising them or us escape from persecution. He's just saying when it happens, don't get distracted, don't be alarmed, don't freak out, you'll be fine. Because something else is at work here. He says the gospel must be preached to all nations. A lot of times people hear this and think Jesus is talking to a 21st century audience and he has in mind the 173 nations that belong to the United Nations or whatever the number is. I think it's about 173. No. When Jesus says the gospel must be preached to all nations, he is a first century person speaking in a first century understanding and for him, all the nations are fundamentally those governed and ruled by Rome in the known world. That's what he has in mind. Now, I know that's hard for us because, you know, various authors have told us otherwise. But listen to what he's saying. And the truth is, the gospel has been preached by the, by the time this was written and distributed to the churches, Jesus' prophecy had occurred. Uh, just, just a sideline, if you're interested in this, how this works out. Uh, remember in um, the book of Acts, Jesus stands up in 1.8 and says, um, be, uh, tarry in Jerusalem and you'll be filled with power in order to be witnesses. Where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And then he says, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Keep that phrase in mind. And then go forward a few chapters until you hear this quirky little story of the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember that story? And we're sitting there saying, what in the world is this story here for? Other than that it's a cool story and you got Philip kind of teletransported around and it's pretty cool in there. Why is this story told? Why is it important that we know that an Ethiopian eunuch became a disciple of Jesus and was baptized in water? Why does that matter? Can you guess what the name for Ethiopia on the maps was of the day? The ends of the earth. Do you see what Luke is doing? By the time we get to the end of that story, the gospel has been preached to the ends of the earth. Now this becomes very important as we go on next here. But Jesus is not talking about thousands of years He's talking about a couple or three decades at most when he says the gospel will be preached to all the nations. 
right? Now, it's not his fault that we didn't keep up that. But that's what he's seeing, and that's what he's saying. Brother will betray brother to death, and this, of course, happened as uh, things began to heat up. Verse 13, or 14, rather. So then when you see the abomination that causes desolation, kind of almost in quotes, standing where it does not belong, and notice Mark's parenthetical statement, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter into the house to take anything. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women, for nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter. But because of those days of distress are unequal from the beginning, when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. In fact, a parenthetical statement again, if the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would have survived. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he shortened them. This is a very strange little passage, but I need you to sit with, with me on this for a second. He talks about, in, in, he uses quoting from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament and 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 uh, using an image, the abomination of desolation, or the abomination that causes desolation. He's referring to a practice that uh, occasionally the Greek emperors and then sometimes the Romans did uh, of, of taking that which was most sacred as the defining reality of a people's existence and, 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 and desecrating that and shaming it so that it was no longer usable as a place of worship. So Antiochus Epiphanes, for example, uh, in, uh, who was the Greek ruler who overcame Jerusalem, sacrificed a pig on the high holy altar of Jer Jerusalem as an example of this. Now Jesus is saying something like that is going to occur again. Let the reader understand. So in other words, Mark is assuming that his readers in 65 to 70 A.D., will know what he's talking about. So this is not a future event from our standpoint. It's a future event from their standpoint and a past event from his reader's standpoint. You, you, does that make sense? So Jesus is saying this to his disciples. Mark is writing it down and delivering it to a church about 30 years later. And between that period of time, this abomination of desolation, whatever it was, and there are three or four options that are available to us, has taken place. In about 64, 65 AD, a Jew Jewish independence revolution began. And Rome finally said, enough with these Jews. Enough with this God-forsaken armpit of a country. We are going to wipe it off the face of the earth. And in the next five years, they systematically dismantled Jerusalem brick by brick and set it on fire. And Jesus is saying there's going to be a trigger event that the readers will understand. When you see that happen, do not go down into your house to get the family pictures. Do not go and get your clothes packed for the journey. Get out of town because all hell is going to break loose. Head for the hills is what he's saying. You will not have time. It, you will be overtaken if you don't pay attention to what I'm saying here. So intense and so ferocious and so sudden 
will be the horror that comes upon you as the, as the anger of Rome is unleashed on this city after decades, after a century of just irritation. It was the last place that any Roman soldier wanted to be assigned. The Jews were known to be the most obstreperous and difficult nation that the Rome ever had to deal with. And finally, Titus says, enough is enough. Wipe the earth of them. That's what Jesus is seeing. And in five years, Jerusalem was completely dismantled and set on fire. What Jesus said was going to happen. Temple demolished. Can you imagine the force required to take a boxcar-sized boulder and push it off of its foundations with such force that it falls distances and crushes the underground caverns on the pavement below. They're doing archaeology on those very stones at that very place in the last five to ten years. It's fascinating. Jesus knows what he's talking about. But then notice the historical anachronism. Those days will be days, verse 19, of distress, unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now, never equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would have survived. And what Jesus is saying prophetically, Mark is interpolating back into his message that God's mercy prevented the bloodshed from extending further and further than it might otherwise have. God mercifully shortened the days of that persecution, of that tribulation, if you will, for the sake of his elect. And please notice now what he says. If anybody in this time says to you, look, here is the Christ. In other words, rally behind this leader. Or look, there he is. Don't believe it. False Christs, false prophets are going to appear. And what are they going to do to validate their existence as prophets and Christs? They're going to give you signs and they're going to perform miracles and do wonders. Don't put any money in that bank. Miracles are proof of nothing in Jesus' language. If there is not a character that supports them, they're not worth traipsing after. Do you see what he's saying here? In fact, people, even the elect, even the people whom God has chosen and drawn to himself can be deceived by miraculous kinds of things happening that have no foundation in righteousness. Be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. That's why he's doing this. In those days then, following that distress, verse 24, and then he uses a familiar prophetic idiom of hyperbole, that it appears in numerous other passages. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. Heavenly bodies will be shaken. In other words, this time frame will come to an end in cosmic, cataclysmic ending. Now, everybody who heard Jesus understood this language not to be literal. They're not expecting the sky to fall from the, the sun to fall from the sky or the moon or the stars. They're ex this is a, a prophetic image to talk about a shift in the ages. This is a cosmic symbol of the end of an age and the beginning of another age. That's how they would have understood that, and I still think it's the best way to understand it. 
Notice then, at that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He will send his angels. He will gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender, its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth. This generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now, just a question that came out after the first service. In verse 31, Jesus is not predicting the ends of the heaven and earth. That's a, a, a Hebraism that says you can take my word to the bank. Okay? What's his word? First of all, he says, pay attention. You guys are really good at reading the fig leaves. And he's on the Mount of Olives. Guess what's all around him? Sycamore figs. When you see these things, you know what's coming. You know that summer is coming. Look, right? It does, it, you don't have to be a, a, a genius in horticultural uh, matters to, to, to get it. You, you, so I've given you the signs, the door. The, the end is right at the end. When you see this happening, pay attention. And, and remember, a lot of people have said, well, this is Israel. The fig tree is Israel. No, it's not. It's a fig tree. It's just a fig tree. It's an image. It's a, it's a metaphor. You guys learn fig trees. Learn life. When you pay attention to it, he says, because he says this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. Now, this is the most alarming thing that he says. Because what generation is he talking about? The generation to whom he is speaking. Literally, he's saying, within 40 years, everything that I have predicted to occur will have occurred. But then he says something very interesting. Verse 32. But no one knows the day or the hour, not the angels, not the Son, not the, but only the Father. So be on guard, be on alert, because you don't know when the time will come. So do you see what he's doing here? He's saying, this is as far into the future as I am able to see and talk about. The last thing is the heavens, uh, the, using that prophetic imagery, the sun, the stars, the moon, etc., right? And up until that point, point chaos and confusion and, and, and tribulation and trouble and distress, right? So, uh, and, and, and then the end is going, is, is going to come. But no one knows when the end is going to come, when the Son of Man is going to come in the cloud. Nobody knows that, not even me. So what he's saying is, Within 40 years of my speaking this, everything will have occurred, but I don't know when the last thing is going to occur. Because the Father hasn't told me that. So what has happened since that generation only lasted 40 years, and by 70 AD, like I said, everything that Jesus had said had occurred except one thing. The one thing he didn't know when it was going to occur. How are you doing with Jesus not knowing stuff? Are you okay with that? Because if you're not, you've got to get a different Jesus. Because this one didn't know. 
when he was going to return. Remember, son of man is his statement for himself. So he knows he's coming back in the clouds of glory. He knows the elect are going to be gathered. He just doesn't know when it's going to occur. But he is confident that within 40 years, everything else he has talked about will take place. And in fact, did. I'll, I'll, I'll be available afterwards for questions. Right? Because this is different than a lot of us have heard before. And I'm hopeful that you will go back and study this, get your magnifying glass out and look this up. But I think this makes the most sense of the text, especially when he says, verse 33, be on guard, be alert, because you don't know when the time is going to come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house. He puts his servants in charge. Everybody has an assigned task, tells the one at the door to keep watch. So keep watch. Why? Because you don't know when the owner of the house is coming back. Whether in the evening or at midnight or the rooster crows or dawn, he comes suddenly, don't let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. So what do we do with this passage? Uh, I mean, you can understand why this, this chapter and the parallels in Matthew and, and other places have been made into more movies have spawned series of books and speculation of one kind or other because we desperately want to know the future, right? Desperately. And Jesus is saying, for the most part, that's none of your business. I don't know it past this 40-year mark. I know that I'm coming back, clouds of glory, to receive the elect, the, those who are my disciples. I'll, I'll receive them to myself. I don't know when that's going to happen. So between now and then, Here's a couple of things. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. I've told you what's coming, so you're ready. And mind your own business. I've given you stuff to do. Do it. One of the things I did not give you to do is to talk about when I'm coming back. Pay attention to your work. What is the household owner given to you to do. Do, do. do you see what he's after here? So don't be anxious. I told you what's coming. Don't panic. If you die, you're still going to be fine. It's not the worst thing that can happen to somebody. Take it from me, he says. If we don't follow that Jesus, then we're going to be terrified at the stuff that happens. Right? So so, so I don't know if you've noticed, but we, we're still... It, if I can bring it up now to where we're at, we're still terrified of the end, aren't we? Harold Camping makes a prediction, and we all run around like our hair's on fire. Or the Mayans. Oh, God, help us, the Mayans. Those infallible predictors of the history of the world who forgot to calculate leap year. <laughs> Has anybody noticed this? I don't know if you've figured this out, guys, but the world already has ended. And, and here we are. Do, do, do you see? I mean, I'm 57. I have, I, I'm trying to think about this yesterday. I think I can count probably 15 different legitimate um, ripples in people's understandings of when Jesus was going to come back. The nation of Israel being founded in 1948. Um, 1988 was the generation 40 years out. Fig tree is Israel. Did a 48, 1988. Jesus has got to come back in 1988. Didn't come back in 1988. 
Okay, Y2K, Y2K, everything's going to fall off the planet right there, boy. Computers aren't going to work. Airplanes are going to fall out of the sky. All right, well, that didn't work, so let's move. I mean, we, we do, why do we do this? We do it because we're terrified to do what Jesus told us to do. Mind our own business. We've got work to do. We live in a culture of people who are terrified. And we have a, a, an internet-fueled frenzy on survival. Did you notice Jesus did not say one word about getting your cans of chicken noodle soup and going to a mountain in Montana and waiting until the end comes? Not one word did he say about that. Anybody else notice that? So don't be digging a bunker under your house. We've got a world to save. Don't be anxious. You're going to be the only one in your neighborhood who isn't. And mind your own business. What has the household owner given you to do? Do it. There's an old story, uh, and, and I, it, I've heard it in three or four versions, so I'm not sure exactly who it was that said it, but this, the preacher was out planting in his garden. And somebody came by and said on a Saturday, Pastor, if you knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, what would you do today? And he said, I would keep planting these seeds. This is what I've got to do today. Why would I do anything different? I'm living in constant awareness that he can come back at any time, which I will receive with gratitude. But in the meantime, I got work to do. Don't you? So here's what I want to do. Jamie and, and our team are going to come back and just create some space for us. I want you to think about the points of anxiety. Are we able to hear Jesus say to us, don't be alarmed and take him seriously? And I'd like you to take a moment, before you leave here in a few minutes, I'm going to ask you just to take those anxieties about end times things and just put them on the altar. If you want to go to the crosses, you can do that. But one way or the other, can you just leave here and leave that concern about December 12, 2012 here? Can you just leave it alone? And then ask Jesus, what have you asked me to do? What is the task that you've put before me? And then ask him to help you do that and not get distracted by the things that are blown in the wind. All right? Let's set some space and do business with God here. <laughs>